Gary. Hi, I'm Karen, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is September 6, 1994. My sponsor's name is Peggy, and my home group is the Way Out Group in Tannersville, Pennsylvania. I start every talk that way. You're going to hear it all weekend long. Um, not because those are the things that have um, given me um, long-term abstinence from alcohol, but there are three things that helped me to get to the source that allowed me to obtain long-term abstinence from alcohol. Um, you know, we're back home, Adam's the nice one. I'm going to warn you that right, right, right out the gate. He's the nice one. When I'm not available, he's like sponsor-in-law. My sponsees call him, and they're like, why can't you be more like Adam? <laughs> like, he's just so cool. And I'm like, state me, sorry. So I'm going to give you that right out the gate. Like, um, he's the nice one. He's the laid-back one. I'm the one who's going to piss you off. Um, and I have the foulest mouth ever. Um, the things that come out of me should not come out of a little girl that looks like, you know, a, you know, this cute little Irish girl that has a mouth like a sailor, and I apologize, but I'm going to try and rein it in because, you know, want to try and, you know, pretend that I, <laughs> that I live this spiritual program. Okay. No, I, I, um, I feel very, very, very intensely about the steps. I feel very intensely about God. I feel very intensely. I have a lot of opinions, and sometimes I express those opinions in not so socially acceptable ways, and I apologize in advance for that. Um, I mean, I've given talks where people have called up, my, my sponsees have called me, and they're like, dude, they wanted to tar and feather you. Um, what did you do to them? Um, so with that being said, um, I want to, yeah, me too, I like giving them. But um, <laughs> we thought, you know, we thought that we wanted to start out this weekend by letting, you know, talking about our stories and letting, letting you know a little bit about us and our journey because, you know, it's like you, you wonder, like, why are we, you know, why we come here for a weekend and listen to us, you know, two morons talk about the book. You know, what is it that is so particular or spectacular about our experience that, that, um, that you know, warrants an entire weekend of discussing God and AA? You know, and the thing is, is there's really nothing that's really particularly special about me or special about Adam, except for we happen to be at the right place at the right time, and we happen to um, get involved in the Big Book community when there was a real renaissance, a resurgence of um, you know, actual practical application of the steps. I mean, it sounds so, <laughs> but really, that was really what it was. And and part of it was because we were very disenchanted with Alcoholics Anonymous prior to our introduction to the Big Book. Um, our experience, was, my experience, was that Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work. Um, I have been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous since I was 13 years old. Um, I got sober at 18. I have, I'm one of five children. We're Irish Catholic, um, so I'm right at home at a Trappist monastery. You know, uh, in fact, I never set foot into a, in a into a Protestant church until I came to AI because you know I, I thought I was going to burst into flames. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I went to an all-girls Catholic school and was expelled. Um, so, I mean, like, I grew up in this, this very religious um, household. But, I mean, it was alcoholism. I mean, and again, this is just my experience with it. It, it seems to run in families. Mm, it's this weird thing. I don't know. Um, so I'm one of five children. Four of us have darkened the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm the only one who stayed. Um, I have one brother who maintains the abstinence from drugs and alcohol but does not um, participate in the 12-step uh, program of recovery. Um, the other two, well, uh, maybe one day. Um, 
I've given him a couple rides to detoxes. Uh, but so, so I grew up in this household where I had very, 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 very religious, very upstanding parents. My parents, um, my mother's a Eucharistic minister. My dad's an usher in the church. They have received accommodations from, uh, the, you know, like the, the, and, and awards from the, for the, from the, like senators have come and given them awards and things like that for their humanitarian efforts. Like I had these incredible parents, and they gave birth to the four of the most shiftless pieces of crap on the face of the earth. I mean, seriously. You know, I look at them sometimes and I think, oh my God, you poor things. Um, but that, with that being said, my, both of my parents are adult children of alcoholics. Um, and again, you know, that kind of lends my, my, my theory that there's something to this disease that, you know, may have some sort of genetic component. And again, um, so I grew up in this household. I had these wonderful parents who just, you know, really just loved us and cared about us and did, did you know, um, all these wonderful things. And I had, you know, these four, the four of us were like, you know, drug addict, alcoholic degenerates. And so there was a very much a very big thing about, like, um, keeping the dirty secrets in, you know, not letting the neighbors know. I grew, I grew up the complete opposite of Adam. Um, I had some privilege. I grew up. My parents were not wealthy, but they um, worked very hard, and so I had I had access to private schools, um, really good health insurance and rehabs. Um, you know, um, I never wanted for anything. I had a stable household. My parents are still married. They celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary a couple years ago. Um, so I mean, I, I had the complete opposite, as you know, than what he had. Yet I ended up as bad, or if not worse, actually, than him when it came into AA. Um, so that, that says something about it. it. Says that you know, external circumstances have nothing to do with my internal condition. You know, because my parents are right now in my house watching my four evil children. That's how much they love me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> They're pretty evil, um, <laughs> but um, I mean that, and that's kind of my point. That I, I you know, I had a very supportive family. Um, you know, they were adult children of alcoholics, so they did have some some things that um, they fell short on. Like my dad had a really bad temper, and he wasn't a, he wasn't short of beating the crap out of you. But a lot of times, like there were things like you know that we did that not that we deserved it, but I mean it, his his violence wasn't out of maliciousness; it was out of an inability to deal with his own feelings or anger, which I've come to recognize today. So it was this weird dichotomy because we looked right on the outside. I had designer clothes. I went to good schools. I had a nice house. We had a dog, nice cars. And inside, you know, we beat the hell out of one another into bloody messes and, you know, and, you know, drunken brawls and, you know, and the cops being called and don't tell anybody and the, all of the shame and all these secrets. And I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest by uh, 16 years. I was a, I was a mistake. Um, I was told, and, the, and my mom, I love her so much, but, like, sometimes she, I wonder what she thinks sometimes because I guess I was in my, like, fourth rehab and I, she wanted to tell me how much she loved me and how much she wanted me so she told me the story about how when she was 40 years old she got pregnant with me and um, the doctor thought she had cancer you know, like they felt like this lump in her, in, her, in her tummy and they told her she was going to die and they went in to remove the cancer which then turned out to be Carrie <laughs> and I was like sorry Miss Cosgrove um, you, 
don't have cancer, but you're going to have another baby. Good luck with that, you know. <laughs> um, and, she, and, and so she told me this story and, and, and about how, like, everybody said, oh, you know, you, you, should, you should really get rid of that, you know. And, like, you know, like, you didn't plan for that, you should get rid of that, you know. Just go get it taken care of. It was 1976, and that was something that was, you know, an acceptable thing to do. And about how she, she really loved me, and she didn't do that. And all I heard was, you're cancer, and I didn't want you, you know. Because <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. I have, that, I have those blinders. I have that, that filter that, uh, that edits for the worst things possible. Because I have this incredible sense of worthlessness and an incredible sense of entitlement at the same time. I need constant approval, acceptance, love, and validation. And if I don't have it, I feel completely empty at all times. And there's no sense of self, no core that says anything about who I am other than I'm nothing. And, you know, and if you felt like that, drinking looks like a really good idea, doesn't it? And I felt like that from like the very beginning of my life. I mean, I don't remember not feeling like that. I don't remember not feeling like there was something wrong with me. You know, and mind you, I'm telling you a little bit about like the household I grew up in. So, you know, you kind of look at it and you go, okay, you know, dad just, you know, beat the crap out of my brother who then beat the crap out of me. And I fell down a flight of stairs and, you know, got stitches in my head and mom's going, shh, don't tell the doctor that he threw you down the stairs. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe that has something to do with why I feel different, you know, because I grew up, you know, I'm living in this, re- re- at the time, it was a relatively affluent community and, you know, um, you know, and, and, and um, I have secrets, all these secrets and all these things and nobody's family's like mine. Nobody has this experience like mine. And, and I, I really believe that that sense of, um, you know, worthlessness or that sense of um, emptiness came from the outside. And when, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I did some step work and I found out that that had almost nothing to do with that lack of sense of self. That lack of sense of self was there long before any of these things happened. You know, because with me, I, ex- I assigned an external condition to everything that went on in my life. You know, I had to blame somebody else because if I acknowledged that there was something different about me or different about how I drank or different about how I perceived the world, that would make me a piece of shit and I couldn't tolerate that. So I had to live as the victim of everything and everyone at all times. And when you're living as the victim of everyone and and, and everything at all times, it makes you really freaking paranoid. So then I'm making up things that really didn't happen because, and I'm reading into things and I'm thinking for you and I'm assigning things to you that, you, that you're going to do in the future so I'm pissed at you about something you haven't done yet and you don't even know you're going to do because I think you're going to do it. <laughs> you know. Then I found alcohol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so so this was kind of my internal state, and you know, and and then and then you know, growing up in the household that I did, you know, with the alcoholics that I did, um, you know, it wasn't so abnormal to find you know booze, you know, and I found it, and I found it at a really young age, and again, it was something that I did, and it was like I wanted. I remember I was like. <laughs> Ten years old, and I said, "I'm never going to be like my brother John." My brother John's a heroin, or was a heroin. Um, he hasn't done heroin in 20 years, um, and I'm never going to be like my brother John because you know he's bad, you know. And then I remember like having my first drink, and by 12, I'm like, "I'm going to be a drug addict," <laughs> and I'm like, "You know, I think I'm going to go out a la Jim Morrison." <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, you know, like my worldview changed so quickly once I put alcohol in my body. 
you know for me it was like everything everything that a normal person would want I absolutely rejected you know and for me and and the truth was was that once I put it in my body and I had that reaction I had that sense of warmth and that feeling of being whole for the first time in my life I knew that I was going to do just about anything to feel that again. And I also knew because I I'd watched what it did to the people that I loved. I watched alcoholism destroy people. I watched, you know, drugs destroy people that I loved. I watched this go on, you know, right in front of me. Um, I, I mean, I knew that I was going to just keep doing this. And I, so I knew that I should just really lower my expectations as to what I was going to be. I figured, you know, rather than being disappointed in myself, you know, and try to be normal, I was just going to not at all. I was just going to remove myself from any expectation, any idea of being human, normal, or functioning on any level. And if I did that, then I could drink any way that I wanted, and, and, and I wouldn't be disappointing myself at least. You know, and I figured eventually people would get with the program and stop, you know, having any kind of expectations or, you know, any you know, idea that I was going to behave in any way that was, you know, socially acceptable, and they would get with my program, which, you know, let Carrie do what she wants, and she'll just drink until she dies, and this will be, be all good. You know, she's just, she's not going to make it to 21, and it's all good. You know, like, I'm just going to go out that way. And I really didn't think I was going to make it to 21. Um, actually, I almost didn't. I died for two minutes. Um, but that's a whole other story. But so, you know, that, that's, that's my worldview once I put alcohol in my body. Like, I knew that there was something different about how I felt when I, when I drank. You know, and, and, I, and, you know, and I, I love when I hear that, that thing in AA, we talk about drug is a drug is a drug. You ever hear that? And I'm like, mm, no. <laughs> no. You know, uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, I, I, you know, I came into AA and I heard, at first I came into NA, you know, and I basically came into relapse. Like, my, my parents kept dropping me off at churches and, like, with a dollar. And they <laughs> just, get in there! You know? <laughs> Take her. And, um, you know, and I would, I would I, there is, they would always make this announcement at the beginning of NA meetings, and they would say, um, you know, if you have anything, any drugs or paraphernalia on you, please, you know, leave them outside. So I would wait a few minutes, and then I would, like, get up and smoke a cigarette and be, like, kicking the bushes, like... Um, I found rides to Newark in NA meetings that was that you know for for a 14 year old girl without a driver's license job or you know any means of obtaining you know that was always a good thing Um, so I found people to relapse with Um, you know and so you know my first introduction to any kind of 12 step recovery was really you know it was it, it was a place for degenerate kids to get together and pool our resources so that we can drink the way we want to. Um, and I really didn't see anything wrong with that. Like, I just kind of felt like that, that, that you, know, you know, this is what we did. And there really wasn't anybody who was sober any extended period of time in, this, in these groups. Because it's not like I went to good meetings. I went to, like, candlelight meetings at 1 o'clock in the morning, you know. Because, <laughs> you know? So, like, I, you know, I picked the chose well. You know, so I looked for every degenerate I could find, and then, you know, we all, you know, pooled our resources. So, you know, my parents kept dropping me off at these churches, you know, with this meaningless and a dollar, you know, and I kept coming in here, and, I, and what I heard was, you know, like, it's a drug, it's a drug, it's a drug, and, and, I, and, I would, and I would think to myself, well, you know, I can smoke pot, and, you know, just like what Adam said, and I don't have any problem with that. 
you know, when I drink, I try to stab people, so I probably shouldn't do that so much. Um, you know, but, you know, pills are fantastic, and especially when you've got a script. Um, I'm actually, I'm almost finished with my master's in psychology, which is really, really ironic because um, the physician's desk reference in the dsm 4 were my favorite tools back in the day. Um, I would read them, and I would make up my symptoms so that I can get the drugs that I wanted, but you had to be able to get the right symptoms, to get the right diagnosis, to get the right drugs. <laughs> no. So I did my research very well. It actually comes in handy because I do work in the mental health field today, which is really funny. And, and when I tell stories about being in four-point restraints to my, my coworkers, they're like, I was like, but I wanted to. Don't worry about it. I wanted to. Dory Jean. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, it really didn't flip out. I just faked it, you know. Like, I wanted drugs. Um, so what, what began to happen for me is, like, I, you know, I, I, did, I did what, what I do, which is, you know, I started to drink, and I found that I couldn't stop drinking. And I found that, the, you know, the consequences piled up. And just like what Adam said, you know, I didn't try to rationalize. I didn't try to do any of those things. I, I, I did the fuck it from the gate. I lowered my expectations. I said, okay, I'm not going to live to be 21. I will die an alcoholic death. I will probably die bloody, stabbed, and raped some, in some freaking crack house down in Newark. And this is okay because I need to drink. You know, and I, I, did, I went right to the fuck it. Um, <laughs> I didn't even like pass go. You know, and so I began to do things like, I don't know, like go down to Patterson, New Jersey and date drug dealers at like 13. That seemed like a good idea. Um, in fact, one time, like, my dad picked me up from school and somebody asked me if it was my boyfriend. And I was like, no, that's my dad. But I guess because I had all these, like, you know, <laughs> these older guys picking me up from school to take me to, you know, do what I had to do. That It didn't, like, occur to me that that was weird. Like, what, like look, if you're 14 you're an alcoholic and you're a drug addict, wouldn't, like, you know, guys who had a car, a job, you know, over 21, wouldn't that make like a lot of sense to you, right? Like why mess with somebody who can't procure alcohol for you, right? Made sense to me, so I would just look at them and be like, you guys are dumb. I don't have to pay for it. You gotta bribe some guy outside the liquor store. I can... roll, they roll up with a case in the backseat of their car. Yeah, later my sponsor explained to me that was called prostitution. Ah! <laughs> I didn't see it that way. I saw it as being very opportunistic and intelligent. <laughs> so when, like, when, 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 like, this 30-year-old drug dealer picked me up at my house, my parents thought maybe it was a good idea for Carrie to go to rehab. So that's what I did. And I went to rehab, and, um, you know, I did what... You typically do in rehab. I talked about my inner child. Um, I made loafers and like a belt. I had like this really nice coffee mug. Um, we had we had a yogurt bar, um, horseback riding, a swimming pool, and see like adolescent rehabs are like kind of like they're 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 psych wards really with like an alcohol rehab you know an alcohol and drug like um, tract in it. So it's like a locked ward. And it's sort of like Lord of the Flies. Like, I began to really like rehab. You know, like, I would go on a run. I would disappear for days. I would, like, you know, be off with my 40-year-old boyfriend. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and like, eventually I'd get mad and I'd come home to steal, to rob my parents. And, 
And, uh, <laughs> and they would be like, you know, you have to go back to rehab. And I'd be like, free drugs, access to men, no parents. <laughs> All right. I'm good with this. Um, you know, so I really didn't, you know, I didn't really have a problem with rehab. Rehab for me was a place to, you know, to chill out and relax, you know, take a spa, come out with some new prescriptions. I was all good with it. You know, so I, st I was doing this and I was coming in and out of AA and I was hearing all of that stuff, you know, like don't drink and go to meetings, meeting makers make it. And I was like, meeting makers make what? You know, I had no interest in actually stopping. I just pretty much came into the, you know, to meetings because I wanted to get people off my back. And I had just accepted that I was going to die. And um, something, something happened where um, I, I, was, I was in Patterson and some bad things happened to me when I was there. And my parents thought it was a really good idea for me to move to Pennsylvania to live with my sister. And my sister, she's a nurse and she's the only non-alcoholic in our family. She had four kids. Actually, we, we, we bought our house, which is really funny because of our four kids and I lived, and I look just like her. Like, I'm like just, an, I'm a half inch taller and I have a different nose. Like, that's the only difference between me and my sister Morning, who's 16 years older than me. Um, everybody thought I was her illegitimate child in the neighborhood. They just, because she, she, was, she was 16 when I was born and people just thought maybe like, you know, she went away for a summer, pushed, pushed me out and just passed me off as her sister. <laughs> like good Irish Catholics, you know. Um, but anyway, so my parents sent me to Live with, sent me to live with my sister and she lived in the woods and you know like I'm a city girl and like I didn't have access to, to, to alcohol the way that I had pri pre previously and you know one of the things that happens to an alcoholic is if you take alcohol away we get way sick I mean like I'm fine when I'm drinking like drinking is my solution to you because you all suck and I think at you and you think at me and I'm playing like this mental chess game you know and my thoughts scream in my head and I pretty much want to sleep all the time and die and so you know if I'm drinking at least I can like function and you know have a conversation with somebody you know and you take that away from me and don't give me anything to, to like you know fill that void up with like you know God um, you know and I go slowly stark raving insane so in this year that I lived with my sister like you know it turns out that I'm actually kind of smart I didn't know that um, and I did really well in school, but the problem was is like I kept trying to kill myself. And I kind of did, it was really funny because like I took, I went to the library and I took out this book about like suicide survivors. And it was this book, like it was a book written for teenagers about how they should, how they could deal with their friends or family members committing suicide. And I read it back to back and I kept like renewing it and I didn't really realize because I wasn't very, you know, aware of what was going on within me. Um, I just kept renewing this damn book. And then one day, like, I ate the medicine cabinet, you know, <laughs> like, it was just like, there was no, you know, you know, I was just, I slept all the time, I was miserable, I wanted to die, I didn't know I wanted to die, but I kept obsessing about suicide, and then one day I just, you know, tried it, you know, nothing happened that day, there was nothing particular about that day, um, I just figured today was a good day to die. You know, and of course my sister's an RN. So look, like if you're gonna try to commit suicide, don't do it when the RN's home. <laughs> so she finds me, which I have made amends to her for that, by the way. <laughs> she finds me, pump the stomach, put Carrie on the psych ward, some more pills for Carrie, which which she keeps using to try or kill herself with. I don't know. So maybe you shouldn't give them to her. Um, <laughs> but so you know, <laughs> so you know, more time on the psych ward, come back out, and and you know, and. 
And I, my pet, she was my sister was like, look, you got to move back home. Like, I can't do this. I can't, you know, I already, you know, I had, we, I've already been through the three other alcoholics. Like, I can't do this. Like, so my parents took me back and I, and I had done, I, I, I did well enough in school to be able to get into this private school. And where this really does apply to step one is, is that I had, the, I had that, you know, that suicide attempt. I spent that time in the psych ward. And the funny thing about alcoholic families is my, when, when all my friends started to call and they couldn't figure out where I was, because, you know, they hold you for a while, you know, when you do something like that. Um, <laughs> like, my, I, I said to my mom, like, when she was visiting me during visiting hours, um, I was like, so what do I tell people? She's like, well, tell everybody you, you had pelvic inflammatory disease. She would rather me have, like, massive clap that came and infected my insides than to say, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict and I tried to kill myself. I didn't, by the way. I told people I owed you. But I made it seem like it was an accident. Um, but so, so I came out of the ward. And, and I was like, you know what, I got into this private school, and I, and I moved back home, and I was like, you know, I, I, I can have a new start here. Like, I can, you know, I had already been gang raped, I had already had the suicide attempt, I already had all this bad shit happen to me. Like, I can do this again, and I can be a good girl. Nobody knows me here. And I got, you know, I got into this all-girls Catholic school. It was like a very prestigious school in, in, uh, where I lived. And I'm like, nobody knows me here. All I have to do is just not drink. I'll go to meetings. I'll, I'll go to real meetings. I'll do whatever I have to do. I just have to not drink. And if I could just not drink, it'll all be okay. I'll pretend that I'm somebody else. If I pretend that I'm a good girl, and I pretend I'm not a fucked up mess, maybe somebody might believe it. Maybe I could be it. You ever do that? And then what happens? With the devastation of, like, when you pick up that drink, when that suddenly happens, when you're just, like, walking down the street and somebody walks up to you and is like, hey, I got a 40. All right. Boom. Not a, not a thought. Nothing. There was no defense. Nothing. All of this stuff, every, all these consequences, like 101 rehabs, you know, a diagnosis is out the wazoo, discouraged parents, discouraged sister, violence, rape, torture, suicide. You want to go get high in the park? Okay. Do, 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 my little Catholic school uniform. You know, not a thought. Not a defense, nothing. I couldn't, it wasn't even, you know, I didn't even raise that threadbare idea that I can do it again. I just did it. Just did it. And within, I don't know, two weeks, I was dead for two minutes. Because I knew, like I knew, I was like, I can't not drink. I don't have not to drink. I keep going to meetings and they keep telling me things like, you know, just make coffee and just keep coming back and, you know, get a network. I hate everybody. I don't want to freaking network. I don't want to interact with people. Everybody sucks. I hate myself. I hate you. I hate every freaking thing on the face of the earth and my skin crawls and you're telling me to freaking call people? Fuck you. You know, seriously, go to the diner. I'd rather die. You know, seriously. You know, so everything they were telling me, everything they were offering me, was like it was like chewing glass. And 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 I would try it, and it wouldn't work, and I would just you know, and I would just feel so empty and discouraged. And I was like, and I would see these people, they would, and some of them were staying sober, and I was like, I can't even get, I can't even stay sober. Like these people, it's working. They they got like you know, ninety days. They got like six months. They're getting their keychains and their chips and their pins and their, and 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 I'm popping you know pills and drinking and dying, and I can't get it. 
you know, and, and, and some dirtbag comes up to me in the park and says, you want to get high? Boom! 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 Not a thought, not a thought, not a thought. Boom, boom, boom. So this was my bright idea. I had this really nice boyfriend who, his sister eventually married my brother, so now he's sort of my brother-in-law, which is kind of creepy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, I did make amends to him, too, for this, because what I decided to do was that I should just get rid of everybody who cares about me, burn every bridge, eat the medicine cabinet, and die for real this time, and just get it over with. Because I can't, I can't not drink, I can't drink successfully, nothing's working, AA doesn't work, NA doesn't work, pills don't work, shrinks, did I tell you I had like a lot of shrinks? My parents had really good insurance. They were union. Union. Great insurance. State union. So, I mean, I had shrinks. I had a shrink who would drive around in a Mercedes to go find me while I was like, sleeping with 40-year-old men for drugs. Um, you know, and she would come find me and drag me out of these places. I mean, this is, this is, they, they, I mean, I had every opportunity one could think to get sober. Everything you could possibly want. You know, Cadillac rehabs. And I can't. So, I call up this wonderful guy who loves me very much, and I tell him he has the smallest penis I have ever seen, and I hope he dies. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's kind of funny that he's my brother-in-law. Um, <laughs> and he comes to family parties at my house. He loves my husband. It's really funny now. <laughs> um, and I tell him, you know, like, I hope you die, and then I eat the medicine cabinet and I die. And my mother finds me on the floor, and I'm not breathing. And I wake up a couple of days later intubated in, you know, in, in the ICU, in the pediatric ICU, as I was 16, and I can't even die. I can't die. I can't not drink. I can't stay away from it. I, I, when I drink, I can't control how much I drink. You know, I do incredibly terrible, horrible things. I wake up miserable, depressed. When I'm not drinking, I want to die. When I do drink... I'm fine, but everybody else wants me to die. You know, and, and now I can't even die. I can't even die. You know, so another trip to rehab, and I come out, and I get thrown out of that wonderful school. I was in there for a sum total of nine weeks, three weeks before rehab, and, you know, <laughs> six weeks after, and then I set something on fire while drunk in the girls' bathroom and beat the shit out of somebody in the hallway all at the same time and got thrown out of that school and uh, got sent to another rehab and then you see the pattern here you know and uh, you know so this went on for a while and it wasn't until I was 18 years old um, that I was able to get any substantial time away from alcohol or drugs and the thing the thing is is that um, I didn't get introduced to the steps until I was two years sober and, um, see, this wonderful thing happened was, like, you know, I had that moment of clarity. Adam already talked about it, where, you know, we crawled out of this basement. You know, I met him, and, of course, it was like, you know, Sid and Nancy, and I love that, you know. And, um, and I told him, I was like, you know, by the way, I I'm going to die. I'm probably going to kill myself. So, you know, don't get too attached to me, but, like, let's have some fun while, while you know, while we're doing this. Um, you know, we get sober, and I get pregnant. I'm, I'm, like, 60 days sober, and I find out that I'm pregnant. Of course, my mother calls me a whore. Um, unwed mothers are not okay in our family. Um, we have a lot of them, by the way. <laughs> um, but I was kind of the one who broke the ceiling on that one. Um, and so I, my, my family had completely disowned me at that point. Like, you know, my mother would see me on the street and she would look through me. Um, she wouldn't even stop. 
you know, and, uh, you know, so I'm this, you know, 18-year-old pregnant girl with 60 days sober in AA, and I know I'm not going to make it. I know I'm not going to stay sober. I'm just hoping that I can stay sober long enough to push this kid out. And I, I had this incredible surrender. Like, I didn't work the steps. I knew nothing about the steps. I mean, I read this 12 and 12, and I thought about the steps, and, you know, and, I, and I was, I'm relatively articulate, so people thought that I had some kind of program, but I had nothing. You know, and I knew that this wasn't going to work. I knew I was going to die. I knew I was going to fail. And I, and I can remember, you know, I was about a year and a half sober, and I'm looking at my daughter. She's a year old, and she's beautiful, the most beautiful creature on the face of the earth. And I'm looking at her, and I'm like, I'm about ready to drink again. And I know it. Um, and I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, well, Adam's was pretty stable because, you know, he had done some kind of work. And my parents are wonderful people. So when I die they'll take care of her and I was making this plan in my head and and uh, my sponsor calls me and says you know there's this weird guy who's going to you know he's going to India and he's going to go study with the Dalai Lama but he's speaking at this meeting you want to go and I'm like alright like whatever you know I'll, I'll just kill myself tomorrow you know sort of thing <laughs> and I'm sitting in this meeting and at this point like I I, um, I was only making midnight meetings because I couldn't I couldn't talk to people um, they, they used to call me Shaky Carrie because I walk around with a coffee cup like this. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't talk to you. I couldn't function. I didn't leave my house. Um, I, I went between complete and utter withdrawal to throwing everything at my poor husband. Um, the, only thing, the only person that I treated with any kind of love was my daughter. You know, and I worshipped her. And, everything, and I was just empty and broken and um, completely, completely, utterly utterly um, incapable of interacting with human beings um, I didn't you know my, my poor sponsor would pick me up and take me to a meeting and I wouldn't speak the entire time I was freaking mute I mean she was such a wonderful lady she tolerated me um, so she took me to this meeting and there was this guy and he was talking about amends he was talking about having we have to make amends to them all them all I hate all by the way <laughs> it's like must you know there's lots of walls and musts, but, you know, that's one of the other misnomers in Alcoholics Anonymous. There are no musts. Bullshit. Um, there's lots of musts and requirements and lots of walls. So he was talking about all. And I got pissed. And it was like the first time in like a year I'd spoken in a meeting. And, and this guy, like, if you had... Uh, Joe Hawk. And he looks like... If, he looked like before... Back in the day, he looked like if Captain Kangaroo and David Crosby had a love child, this is what this man looked like. <laughs> so he's got that walrus mustache, and oh my God, and he's in this meeting saying, gotta make amends to them all, gotta make amends to them all. And I was like, hey, fuck you, buddy. I'm not making amends to those people. They fucked me over. I'm like this because of what they did, and I died, and I this, and I that, and, and I'm ranting. Like, I hadn't opened my mouth in a freaking year, and all of a sudden, like... It was like the exorcist. Like, my head spun around. And I was like, ah! And then this poor guy, I mean, like, he was such a... He just looks at me, and he just gets that smile. You ever, you know, now, pe now, people do this to me all the time. I'm sure they do it to you, right? That this newcomer comes up completely insane and spews like this... And you just smile because you have them. You know you have them. And, you, and you're like, oh, I got you. <laughs> And so he gets that look. And I think, I think I'm convincing him of, of why the nine step doesn't apply to me. 
Now, I haven't even written a four-step blueprint. <laughs> I mean, I, and then the third step was something I was thinking about. Like, we, it was kind of like, the, I went fishing, threw my will out, and I took it back. You know, I ever hear that people say, I gave up my will, I took my will back. You, you align your will, dumbass. <laughs> Where do you say we give up our will? It's not a fishing expedition, man. So, I mean, I was used to saying things that I was doing this. You know, so I was fishing. And uh, I didn't know what it meant to be an alcoholic. I said I was one. I had no idea what craving, mental obsession, spirituality, although they were all over the place. I didn't know what they were, but I, you know, but I didn't want to make amends. And I was going to convince him why I didn't, it didn't apply to me. And oh my God. So he calls somebody over and he, he qualifies me. I didn't know that at the time, but that's exactly what he did. And he hooked me up with somebody to work, work the steps with me. And I began to work the steps out of the big book. And I began to, I was, for the first time in my life, I knew what it meant to be an alcoholic. And I knew why I, I kept thinking, you know, I'm just going to die. Because he says we're doomed. Like, literally, he says, doom, doom, doom. You know. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, I have a deadly disease and I'm doomed to die an alcoholic death or live on a spiritual basis. So that's what's been wrong with me the whole freaking time? Holy crap! I don't have to fix everything outside, make my family perfect, or erase all this stuff, and, you know, heal my inner child for me not to drink again? Holy crap! You know, it's like, oh, you know, that, that was like revelation to me. You know, so they said, you know, I, I learned what it meant to be an alcoholic. I learned why I couldn't control what I, you know, when I. What, how much I drank once I started. I learned what, you know, that, the delusion of controlling and enjoying my drinking. I didn't have the delusion of controlling and enjoying my drinking. I didn't try to control my drinking. I enjoyed my drinking and I got annoyed when people thought that there was something wrong with that because drinking, you're supposed to enjoy it. Why would I have to? That's just stupid. It's a waste. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of energy because it just doesn't do it for me. So I, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And for you to suggest such a ludicrous thing as only having one drink, it, it just seems so utterly bizarre. And, you know, you know, so when it was explained to me that there was you know, something physiologically different about me that made that thing that such an utterly bizarre thing, you know, because it talks about that in the big book. It says, you know, it talks about the, the normal drinkers. And it says that obviously they're having a different experience than we are, right? You know, and, and I learned that, that I had a different experience with alcohol, that I perceived alcohol differently than everyone else. And what I also learned is I perceived you and myself, the universe, and God differently than the average person. And I talked about feeling paranoid. You know, I talked about feeling empty and lonely and lost, you know, ruled by fear. You know, that's what we call it self-centered fear, you know. And what I learned was that there, that there was that three components to alcoholism. And I learned that it was that self-centered fear that was the engine of all of this discontent that made drinking look like a good idea. To somebody like me who has my experience with alcohol, you know, one would say, wow, gee, maybe I just shouldn't do that anymore. But when you feel like me and you have that spiritual malady going on, alcohol looks like a damn good idea. And it seems absolutely ludicrous not to do it. You know, and when it was explained to me that that, that is the nature of alcoholism, not the other way around, and that, you know, I don't have triggers, that I'm a trigger. 
my just my state of being itself and breathing is a trigger. <laughs> you know, and it was explained to me that, and and I began to understand what it meant to be an alcoholic. What it meant, but what it did is, of course, it beat me into a state of reasonableness. It, it, it and it, and it certainly made me feel utterly doomed. And and you know, because it's supposed to. You're not supposed to finish your first step going, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you finish your first step, and you finish those pages in the big book, and you're like, damn, I'm fucked. <laughs> now I gotta do all this shit. I gotta do all this stuff, and it's so hard. I'm supposed to feel like that. And that's exactly how I felt. But I was given some kind of solution. You know, some kind of solution that made some kind of sense to me. You know, because everything I was given up until that point by the program, or by, I say, keep saying the program by the fellowship. It's one of those misnomers that I sometimes slip with. Um, everything I was given up until that point by the fellowship was about arranging the outside. You know, just don't go those places. Well, guess what? Those places are everywhere. You know, people, places, and things. I am the people, place, and thing. And I go everywhere because I bring my freaking alcoholic mind everywhere. I could be, you know, in Alaska, and I will find some way to get high. I will eat tree bark if I have to. I will lick a fucking toad. But I will do it. You know, because I'm bringing me. I'm my trigger. <laughs> you know, so everything I had learned up until that point was about an external solution. Like, like rearrange the outside, fix it all, and then somehow the inside will get better. And what I, what, what I was taught by these people was that I needed to straighten out spiritually and that when I straightened out spiritually, I straightened out mentally and physically. And that if I, if I addressed the spiritual problem, that thing inside of me that was the engine of my disease would eventually stop making alcohol look like a good idea you know and and that was really my experience with it but ultimately I had to unlearn I'm finishing this up now I had to unlearn all of those things that I learned from the fellowship of, of Alcoholics Anonymous all of those things all of those delusions that I had about alcoholism like you know think the drink through or I make it I choose not to drink today if I can choose not to drink today guys look look I hate wearing a dress. I hate people. I'm incredibly shy. I'm antisocial. I really, I like to just be curled up with a book and not have to talk to anybody. I really, I, I hate people. <laughs> it's kind of funny that God made me come at like a, do workshops and speak in conferences and stuff. I think it's my punishment for hating people. Um, <laughs> karmic. Um, but the thing is, is I really I hate doing this. I, I, I'm, I'm somebody who really prefers to be relic. I like anonymity, really, and I like invisibility. I mean, I really do. That's I'm a nat I'm naturally somewhat um, just shy. And so if I could not be doing this in this stupid dress. And I could be home watching Game of Thrones, you know, and like eating like bonbons and curled up on the couch. Like, dude, no offense, George is beautiful, but like, you know, I'm tired. I worked until like four o'clock in the morning, you know, or I, I, I worked at two in the morning, slept two hours, you know, slept four hours, got on a plane and came here. I'm like sleep deprived, cranky, premenstrual, and in a freaking dress. Like, I would rather be home. <laughs> You know, I would rather be home. But, you know, if I could choose not to drink today, I, that's what I'd be choosing to do. But I don't have a choice. That choice is beyond me. The only thing I could choose to do is to live on a spiritual basis or die an alcoholic death. Those are the two options I have. 
and only one of them is viable. So the fact is, is that, you know, those things that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to unlearn. I had to unlearn. And it was amazing that all of the answers that I needed were hidden in this stupid blue book that I used as a coaster, you know. And so what really what we want to do this weekend, and I know you guys, I'm preaching to the choir. I get that. But there's also, like Adam talked about the spirit of the steps and like not being so attached to being mechanical and about the 12th step. We want to talk a lot about that and what it looks like to, to live on the spiritual basis. What does it look like? What is your vision of God's will for you? And since we're supposed to develop this vision of God's will for us, so like, what the hell is it? You know, really? I mean, look, I was a high school dropout degenerate in four-point restraints arrested in my parents' living room, bit a Bluefield police officer in the leg. <laughs> you know, I almost have a master's degree. I have four children. I, like, I'm an upstanding member of society. You know, nobody knows. Any, like, you look at me, you would never know that I bit a police officer. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so really, like... You know, what, what is that vision? That, well, when I got sober, I had no idea that I'd become this person. You know, and, and you think, and I, we want, you know, that's one of the things that we really want you to think about this weekend is what, what is your vision for your sobriety? You know, what, you know if, if God has brought us here, where can we go from here? What does more look like? I'm a degenerate from New Jersey. I get to travel all over the world and talk to alcoholics and do cool-ass shit. That was not my vision of God's will for me. But, dude, it rocks. So can you imagine what else he's got for me? How cool is that? So, I mean, that's one of the things that we really want you to think about this week. And obviously we're going to talk about mechanics and things like that. But we also want to talk about that spirit. We want to talk about that vision. We want to talk about that enthusiasm. We want to talk to you about what it looks like to apply these principles, what it looks like in actual action. But... That's for tomorrow. So thank you so much and thank you for letting me share it.